Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. Governor Kathy Hochul is defending her proposed changes to New York's 2019 landmark bail reform laws, while the Assembly Speaker is casting doubt on whether the items will be part of the state budget, which is due April 1st. More from the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt. Hochul waited nearly a week to respond since a 10-point memo detailing her proposed changes to the state's criminal justice laws was leaked to the media. In an op-ed in the New York Daily News, Hochul says bail reform has been a success and has resulted in fewer New Yorkers being kept behind bars because they can't afford to pay. But she admits that there's been a distressing increase in shootings and homicides since the law was passed, and she says the legislation is not perfect. Hochul, who did not take questions after making a speech at a state trooper graduation ceremony, issued the opinion piece along with Lieutenant Governor Brian Benjamin. Benjamin, who as a state senator was a strong advocate of the criminal justice changes, ducked reporters twice instead of answering questions about the memo. Late Tuesday, though, he responded. We believe bail reform is a good thing. We are, I was a part of bail reform one and two. We believe it's a good thing. We also believe, given what we're seeing, that there are some amendments that should be a part of that. Among the changes Hochul is seeking is making it harder for repeat offenders to avoid bail and allowing judges to consider more factors when they decide whether a defendant should be eligible for bail or simply released until their court date. She also wants to make more gun-related crimes bail eligible. The governor, who's running for election to the post she filled last August when Andrew Cuomo resigned, is under pressure from political opponents. Both Democratic and Republican candidates have issued a barrage of ads faulting her for not acting to revise the bail reform laws and linking the issue to rising crime rates. Legislative leaders strongly backed bail reform, saying it would help to quell inequities between the way black and brown New Yorkers are treated in the criminal justice system compared to whites. They're reluctant to make changes without seeing more data on whether the laws have contributed to rising crime. Recent studies by NYU's Brennan Center and the New York City Controller did not find evidence that the changes are causing the crime wave. Assembly Speaker Carl Hastie, who's negotiated eight budgets, says he and his members won't be coerced by the governor to rush, with only a few days left until the end of the fiscal year. He says the proposals could be decided later in the session. I'm not threatened by anything. I'm not going to feel pressured by anything. The speaker says other causes for the crime wave need to be examined, including the long and still ongoing pandemic and breakdowns in many social services that help prevent crimes from happening. He says he's angered that opponents of bail reform say he and other lawmakers don't care about public safety. That's all bullshit. We care about having safe communities, and I hate when people try to politicize, you know, these things. Senate leader Andrea Stork-Cousins says she supported bail reform because of real-life tragedies, including that of Khalif Browder, a teen who was incarcerated for months when he could not make bail for a crime he did not commit and later committed suicide. The Senate leader told reporters that she and her Democratic members do not want to go backwards and undo the benefits of bail reform, and she says she was taken unawares by the government 
governor's proposed changes. Well, obviously the 10 points uh, took, took me by surprise, but I know that she's obviously been thinking about it. Just as we, we all have been talking to stakeholders and people about what, what the reality is and isn't, and I will go back to, we don't have data that says that our bail reforms have led to a spike in crime, and the reality is the spike in crime is national. Stuart Cousins says crime has been rising in many other states that did not change their bail laws. The legislative leaders are not rejecting all of the governor's ideas. They say they are open to proposals to increase funding for pretrial services, youth diversion and employment programs, and more mental health services. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartalk. Alan, as we just heard from our Karen DeWitt, and as we've been talking about for a while now, big differences between Democrats in the state over bail reform and changing those bail reform laws. Republicans have been bashing Democrats for a long time and blaming current crime and gun violence on the reform. And now you have a governor whose proposal was leaked that shows she is moving toward making changes to those bail reform laws. She and Lieutenant Governor Benjamin even went so far as to publish an op-ed in the New York Daily News, basically saying don't blame bail reform, improve it. And it seems like a pretty savvy, I guess, political move to quell some of the criticism. Look, David, she has a tough road here. The bail reform thing was passed by a bunch of liberals in the Assembly and Senate, and it looked like it was going to work. Bail should be equal for everybody. In other words, if you're rich, you can get out with your money. And if you're poor, you don't need as much money to make bail. Well, that was what bail reform was, and people didn't like it. They didn't like it for a lot of reasons, some of which are good and some of which are very bad. I mean, if you don't have the money, why should you be subjected to staying in jail when somebody with a lot of money doesn't have to meet that problem? So it's not good, and Hochul is now saddled with this and doesn't quite know what to do about it and comes up with a bunch of half measures. But in the end, it's her problem now, and she's going to have to live with it. The stadium game, Alan, in New York and many other states, we see often the state ends up paying for sports stadiums. And there's an effort going on right now to do just that out in Buffalo, to give the Buffalo Bills a new stadium, a number of editorials out on this, including from the Times Union of Albany, calling it the stadium game. And the idea of covering a stadium that's estimated at $1.4 billion, and that's the public's money. It's the public's money. Now let's take a careful look at this. Who's the governor now? And where did she come from? And does this place are under strain from people who will really not like the idea that people's money are being spent to sell hot dogs? I mean, look, this is not a good thing. And if people want a stadium, let them pay for it. Let them pay for it not only with their tax dollars, 
But let the people who are building these things, you know, face profit and loss like every other business does. Am I a fan of sports of this kind? No, I have to admit it. I am not. You know, I believe that this is a way of giving people stuff that they can understand and spending a lot of money on it. But I don't like it. Yeah, I think that's probably shared by many if you think about the billions of dollars that the NFL has in its coffers along with all the huge salaries they pay to the players. Yep, absolutely true. Whether or not people would rather have sports, which has sometimes been called the new opiate of the proletariat, you know, just keep everybody happy by giving them the hot dogs and giving them a place to go and raise cane, you know, is different. I am not a huge sports fan, so... A lot of people who are listening to this will reject what I'm saying. I don't care. But I like the idea that taxpayers' money goes to support schools and support police where they are needed is okay with me. But the idea of sports stadiums of this kind doesn't do it for me. Legislative Gazette Political Observer Alan Shartok. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Leaders in Washington have pitched boosting domestic semiconductor manufacturing as a way to address supply chain woes, foster competition, and create jobs. As the Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard reports, officials in New York are hopeful for billions in federal incentives. The Senate last June passed the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act. The House in February passed the Competes Act. Both bills contain $52 billion for the so-called CHIPS Act, funding domestic semiconductor research, design, and manufacturing. In his State of the Union address earlier this month, President Biden urged Congress to take action on a bill to spur semiconductor manufacturing. The Democratic president pointed to Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger in the audience. Pat came to see me and he told me they're ready to increase their investment from $20 billion to $100 billion. That would be the biggest investment in manufacturing in American history. And all they're waiting for is for you to pass this bill. So let's not wait any longer. Send it to my desk, I'll sign it, and we'll really take off in a big way. New York Congressman Paul Tonko, a Democrat from the 20th District, said the $52 billion in funding to support semiconductor manufacturing will be a powerful shot in the arm. As the House and Senate begin reconciling their respective bills, Tonko on Tuesday said he hopes a deal could be reached very soon. As it relates to semiconductors and the uh, microelectronic industry, um, our bills are almost carbon copy. And, and so I think that section, when it's conferred, when, when it's conferenced, will be uh, pretty much approving of that CHIPS activity within each bill. Taco was part of a group of lawmakers who wrote to U.S. Department of Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo earlier this month calling for the National Semiconductor Technology Center and National Advanced Packaging Manufacturing Program to be located in New York. The entities were created under the CHIPS Act. President Biden's push for semiconductor funding drew the attention of New York officials, including Governor Kathy Hochul. 
In a March 1st tweet, Hochul thanked Biden for highlighting the issue in his national address, adding in part, quote, my administration has laid the groundwork to cement New York as the national hub for semiconductor manufacturing, and we're ready to make his vision a reality, end quote. Hochul was joined by a fellow Democrat, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, in January at the Albany Nanotech Complex, pushing the campus as an ideal location for the Technology Center. And guess what was on my mind when I wrote that? A six-letter word, A-L-B-A-N-Y. Following the passage of the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act, Schumer visited Malta, home to the headquarters of semiconductor manufacturer Global Foundries. There, Global Foundries CEO Tom Caulfield announced plans to build out the existing Fab 8 facility and the construction of a second fab at the Luther Forest site, where 3,000 workers are currently employed. This new fab will require investments in the billions and will not just support U.S. manufacturing, but also add approximately 1,000 new jobs directly by GF and thousands of jobs indirectly, including construction and infrastructure jobs. Global Foundries says it has invested more than $15 billion at its Fab 8 site. Saratoga County Chamber of Commerce President Todd Shimkus compared the incentives to boost semiconductor manufacturing in 2022 to the hundreds of millions of dollars rolled out to attract the high-tech industry ahead of a 2009 groundbreaking in Malta. You know, what you need is similar to what we had to do back you know, 12 years ago in order to entice AMD. There had to be some incentives to lower the cost of uh, manufacturing. Shimka said state infrastructure money is needed to help support the proposed expansion at Global Foundries. We need investments at the federal level, we need investments at the state level, and what that's going to do is generate private investment. And, and we're talking, you know, $15 billion, uh, upwards of $15 billion and more private investment. That's absolutely going to have an impact across the region. As Global Foundries considers its expansion, the Hudson Valley Community College TechSmart campus, home to the Clean Technologies Early College High School program, is also planning to expand. In February, the Saratoga County Board of Supervisors voted to provide $1.5 million to support the new construction. Todd Kuzniers is chair of the county board. Uh, the reason that uh, the, the measure uh, uh, was so uh, roundly supported is because of Glo Global Foundries being located right here in the county uh, and the partnerships that can take place from an educational standpoint. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Lucas Willard. A new poll finds Americans increasingly worried about free speech rights. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas explains. 84% of respondents to a new national New York Times opinion Siena College poll say Americans being afraid to exercise freedom of speech is a very serious or somewhat serious problem. Pollster Don Levy notes 55% of Americans say they have held their tongue over the last year because they were afraid of retaliation, being harshly criticized, or in order to avoid conflict. Of that group, 57% are concerned about retaliation, 65% are concerned about being harshly criticized, and 94% kept silent to avoid conflict. Nearly a quarter of all Americans, 22%, reported restricting their freedom of expression for all three reasons. But ongoing culture wars don't actually mean there are any new limits on the First Amendment. As many public figures and others have learned, though, there can be quick-moving consequences for questionable statements. 
Vincent von Ventry is a professor of law at Albany Law School. He says he's not surprised by the results of the poll. It seems to reflect what Americans actually are thinking. Whether it ought to be as much of a concern uh, is a different story. But, you know, with the country being so polarized along cultural lines, political lines, religious lines, you know, it's not surprising at all that, you know, somebody would make a comment that that person might think to be totally innocent, and yet someone might take offense, someone might get angry, someone might even want to retaliate. And uh, we've all seen that happen. Von Ventry believes social media has emboldened many people to express polarizing viewpoints, posting opinions and saying things they wouldn't ordinarily say face-to-face. Levy says the survey found 70% of those polled feel safe to express themselves when among family or friends. But that's it. When we move over to communicating with friends online, at work, uh, as we move about the community, there's a reluctance, there's a concern that we are not free to express ourselves. And we ask, how about you? Have you ever retaliated against someone because of something that they've said? And one out of four of us say that that is indeed the case. Uh, Looking forward, do we think that uh, free speech is the cornerstone of our democracy and should be protected? 66% of us say absolutely. But right now, almost a third, 30% of us say that it's time to shut down some forms of speech that are either anti-democratic, bigoted, or simply untrue. Bonventry says Americans should listen more and try to understand people with different views. And it might not be for the kind of despicable or detestable uh, reasons that we think. You know, so again, you know, listen to people, try to understand them a little better. You know, it's much easier to say that than it is to do that, especially again with the fact that we are so divided along cultural, political, religious, social lines. Again, Levy. Strikingly, when we asked uh, respondents to think about 11 forms of controversial speech, including things like teaching students the history of racism or questioning the scientific credibility of public health officials, and we said, do you think that most people you know support or oppose a person's right to engage in that speech? And we reminded them that those forms of speech were constitutionally protected. No single form of controversial speech was supported by more than 71%. And in fact, only 1% of the people that we polled across the United States support a person's right to engage in each and every one of those controversial forms of free speech. Bonventry says the survey exposes people's concerns. On the other hand, I think that there are probably reasons where we should be somewhat less concerned and we should be less worried about um, speaking our mind. As long as, what, as long as what we are saying is somewhat thoughtful and somewhat reasoned, if we're going to say things that are totally bigoted, totally sexist, well, we should probably expect some kind of unfavorable reaction. There's a link to the survey at wamc.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas.
You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. New York State Department of Environmental Conservation Commissioner Basil Sagos was in the North Country this week and spoke with the Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley about a number of topics, including his reason for the visit to speak at the Quebec, New York Transportation Aerospace Rendezvous. The North Country, in particular this section of the North Country uh, around Plattsburgh, doing an extraordinary job in uh, developing the economy of the of the future, right? You talk about clean transportation, and you think about Plattsburgh, frankly. You think about Nova Bus and Bombardier. I mean, producing clean technologies that will help us meet our climate targets statewide. It's very exciting to be up here. Uh, North Country Chamber of Commerce and our friends from Quebec and our uh, business partners from around the around the U.S. all here to 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 strike this uh, these relationships. Um, so uh, our our Climate Act is is setting the stage, I believe, for an incredible amount of job growth in New York. Um, we see with this transition to clean to the clean economy of the future that for every job lost will be nine jobs gained. And that's going to be the creation of effectively hundreds of thousands of jobs across the state. So Plattsburgh, this part of the North Country, actually has a jump on that. You know, they see, they've seen for some time that um, they have an opportunity to use open space, right, and, and a, a trained workforce uh, at, the, at the former air base, and start making some of these incredible uh, technologies and putting those out uh, all around the country, shipping off buses, clean buses to San Francisco or Houston, uh, and ultimately, of course, we hope into all across New York. So they've got a jump, um, but we think with that with the uh, with the certainty that we will be providing with our climate uh, law and ultimately the regulations and incentives, that other parts of the state will see this this opportunity as well. Particularly Buffalo, we have you know similar type of uh, manufacturing history and lots of trained uh, workers, you know, strong labor as well, so strong labor presence, that you'll see this this incredible uptick in production of, of what we need to, to transition this economy from fossil fuels to renewables. I understand, too, the state is encouraging more green school buses, and the state is also transitioning its fleet of vehicles to go greener. That's correct. I mean, Pat, this is, this is uh, a great opportunity for us as we address the climate crisis, right? Reduce our emissions to build this new economy out. Governor Hochul has come out very strongly in support of electric school buses. And for me as a parent, I put my kids on the bus this morning and it was a diesel bus. I think about it every day, right? Every one of us who's been on a green, uh, on one of those old school buses, you can taste those diesel fumes. It's bad for the kids, bad for the driver, uh, bad for the environment. So the governor wants to make sure we, we make that transition as aggressively as possible. Every new bus sold after 2027 will be electric. Every single bus by 2035 will be electric. That's going to be huge for our, our health, uh, our economy, uh, and ultimately will help us reduce those emissions from that transportation sector. So, yes, we're going big on that. We're going to go big on transitioning our own fleets, right? We have to practice what we preach, preach. Uh, make sure we have uh, a green fleet here in New York State and, and that we're providing EVs for all of our workers across the, across the state. So we intend to lead by example. Now, while Plattsburgh is working on transitioning to the green manufacturing, particularly at Nova Bus, mm -hmm. which is more the commuter bus type of mm -hmm. manufacturing, where are we getting the green school buses mm -hmm. and the green fleet? Do we have the manufacturing facilities within New York State to provide 
not only the green vehicles, mm -hmm. but the green jobs. Right. Well, we want those jobs here. Lion Electric, uh, smartly, a couple of years ago, pre-pandemic, opened up a new uh, sort of a small uh, sub-office, if you will, outside of Albany. I think recognizing that, that we were shifting already at that moment to the economy of the future. So they saw a market opportunity. Uh, I know they've got plans in the States to, to build out. I went to an event recently at the Capitol, um, right outside the Capitol on the Empire State Plaza, where you had um, uh, Bluebird also was present. Bluebird, the big, the big bus company nationally, they're beginning to, to make that shift to electric. Uh, and there was a manufacturer there, I forget the name of the manufacturer, but the manufacturer who, uh, based in New York, would be retrofitting old buses. So pulling out the diesel engine, putting in a battery and a, and a battery drive, um, and ultimately having that, that as an option. Uh, because these buses typically last 10 years or more. I mean, if you have a bus that you want to transition into an electrical uh, before that 10 years is up, then you make that, that retrofit. Uh, so we want to make sure that's happening in New York and ultimately attract those businesses here. Basil Sagos, I cannot chat with the Commissioner of Environmental Conservation without talking about the Adirondacks. Oh, yes. I'd imagine. <laughs> yes. The Adirondack Rail Trail is actually under construction. Mm. Uh, some of the rail tracks have been removed. Uh, what's the status and the plans for the construction season that's coming up on that mm -hmm. rail trail? Great question. So very excited that we are where we are right now. We finally have seen the rails pulled up and we could begin to transition into construction of the trail. Uh, it's taken years to get to this point. Uh, some of that litigation years, some of it uh, planning years, but we are here nonetheless. Um, so we actually uh, signed with uh, the State Department of Transportation just last week, uh, transfer of jurisdiction. So the rail trail is now uh, DECs for the making. Uh, we're working very well with uh, the Office of General Services to build this out. Uh, ultimately, will be opened in phases starting next year. But even in the meantime, this will be a usable trail for um, hikers, uh, walkers, runners, bikers, uh, even electric bikes will be permitted, ultimately, and in the winter for uh, snowmobile riders. Um, so this, this work's going to start uh, with some, some, um, uh, with an aggressive time, timeline and ultimately... You know, give the North Country what they've been asking for for years, which is a robust trail from uh, Lake Placid all the way to Tupper Lake. That's the Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley speaking with Basil Sagos, Commissioner of the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation. That about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2212. Or just listen, schedule a podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at this same time. For more news on New York State government and politics, for the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina. David Gustina.